Hello. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm your host, Chad Bown, the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. Tariffs are once again in the news here in the United States. Given today's worries about rising inflation, American policymakers want to know how much prices might fall if they were to lower some of those recent trade war tariffs imposed on China. This episode is about a related but different tariff problem. The current structure of U.S. tariffs is weird and not in a good way. That weirdness ends up disproportionately hurting America's poor. In this episode, we're going to learn about how today's weird pattern of tariffs is the result of history and the legacy of trade negotiations undertaken more than 50 years ago. We'll also talk about what policymakers need to do differently now to fix the underlying problem. To help explain all this, we're going to speak with Lydia Cox. Lydia is a trade economist, a postdoctoral fellow at Yale University, and she has some brand new research about this very issue. Hi, Lydia. Hi, Chad. Today, I want us to get right into it. In the United States, we have a lot of economic worries, but one long-running concern involves what policymakers can do to tackle inequality and poverty. Lydia, to start us off, when policymakers talk about things like taxation, what do they mean when they say they want policies like a tax system to be progressive? So generally, at least when you think about tax policy, policymakers tend to try to make policies progressive, which means they're going to ask more of richer people than they will for, for poorer people. So that's why, you know, U.S. income taxes are higher if you have more income than they are for, for people with less income. Income taxes are one form of taxation. Another is import tariffs. Tariffs are a tax applied to purchases of a good if that good is, is made in another country. That same product made domestically does not face that particular type of tax. You're a trade economist who spends a lot of time thinking about tariffs, this, this other form of taxes. If we look at today's U.S. tariffs on imports, are they progressive? So set in a way that tends to benefit poorer Americans? Or are they regressive, so set in a way that tends to work against poorer Americans? So what I found in my research is that U.S. tariffs are largely regressive, which means that they're actually higher on cheaper varieties of goods than they are on more expensive varieties. For example, a tariff on a, an expensive handbag that's made of, of alligator skin, so something that might cost you around $400, is only 5%, whereas the tariff on a cheap handbag made of plastic that would cost you about $8 is closer to 15%. Lydia's research is really sophisticated. That example sounded easy, but it required carefully comparing two different types of handbags, fancy alligator skin versus a simple plastic kind, it also involved examining what are called Most Favored Nation, or, or MFN, tariffs. These are the tariffs that the United States applies under WTO rules to imports from trading partners like the European Union, the UK, India, Vietnam, 
So, so countries that are not part of some sort of special U.S. trade deal, like NAFTA or the new USMCA. It's also not those special trade war tariffs that President Trump imposed on China. The sorts of tariffs that Liddy is studying do not often make the headlines. But these tariffs are important, and the rates affect a huge amount of U.S. imports. Lydia, when you went beyond handbags and, and looked more systematically at all of the products facing these tariffs, what did you find? So across the entire U.S. tariff schedule, if we consider all goods where tariffs vary across their underlying varieties, so you know handbags and the different types of handbags, we find that almost two-thirds of those goods are regressive in that way, meaning that on average, tariffs on the cheaper varieties are higher than, than the tariffs on the more expensive varieties. And this is especially true for consumer goods. So the things that, you know, ordinary people buy on a regular basis. So here, almost three quarters of goods exhibit this regressive pattern. For some reason, tariffs are less regressive on other types of goods. So intermediate goods, which are the types of things that firms buy or, or capital goods, things of that nature. For things that American firms buy from abroad, you don't see this regressivity. So capital equipment, intermediate inputs, parts, machinery that American companies buy to, to, to then use to make other stuff, U.S. tariffs on those don't exhibit this weird pattern. But for the things that households and, and consumers buy, there is this problem. What do you think that is? President Donald Trump used to like to say that, that he was a tariff man. Is today's regressive pattern of tariffs just one more legacy of the Trump administration? Well, actually, it turns out that this regressive pattern really is not at all new. So tariff rates on most of these very specific varieties of goods have hardly changed over the last 30 years. And it goes back even farther than that. So, you know, when we look at data decades and decades before, we still see this pattern in the data. Let's go back in American history, decades and decades then, and put ourselves into the year 1930. On Wall Street, the U.S. stock market has just crashed. That was the fall of 1929, kicking off what has now become the Great Depression. This global economic calamity will end up lasting for much of the next decade. In the United States, unemployment will ultimately hit nearly 25% of the American workforce. This is absolutely devastating. For tariffs in 1930, the United States gets some new legislation introduced by Senator Reed Smoot and Representative Willis Hawley that would then be signed into law by American President Herbert Hoover. This new legislation increased U.S. tariffs a lot. Perhaps the most famous tariffs in history? This was the infamous Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act of 1930. Lydia, take us back to your research. The new Smoot-Hawley tariffs of 1930, they were really high, but were they also regressive? The Smoot-Hawley tariffs were actually, they were very, very high. This was a major overhaul of the U.S. tariff schedule. But it turns out that they weren't regressive. So this is actually the last point 
in the data that we find that this regressive pattern is not there and is really the starting point for a lot of our analysis. Fascinating. So even though the Smoot-Hawley tariffs were enormously high, some estimates put the average tariff around 60%. For context, today's U.S. tariffs average around 2 or 3%. But those tariffs in 1930 were not particularly regressive. So they were not structured in a way that would disproportionately target the poor. So if it wasn't 1930, when did this pattern of regressive U.S. tariffs start to emerge? We find that this regressive pattern emerged during the late 1930s and early 1940s. It continued kind of creeping up through about 1970, and then tariff rates since then have been relatively stable. What was your first clue about how the U.S. was starting to do trade policy differently in the late 1930s that might explain why? During the late 1930s, the U.S. starts engaging in bilateral trade negotiations with a lot of different countries. And this was sort of the precursor to the, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or the GATT, which itself was the precursor to the WTO. So this is sort of a, a new phase in U.S. trade policy where the U.S. is engaging in negotiations with either one country or, or a set of countries. And so we think that, you know, and eventually find that these negotiations end up being a big driver of this regressive pattern. The story here is ultimately about the impact of historical trade negotiations on tariff regressivity. In terms of U.S. history, Let's now go to 1934, so four years after those infamous Smoot-Hawley tariffs went on. A new American president has now been elected. This is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And in 1934, Roosevelt signs into law something called the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act. This new law shifted tariff-setting policy away from the U.S. Congress and toward the president. This 1934 law gave the president new powers to go out and negotiate reciprocal trade deals with other countries. So the U.S. will agree to lower its tariff on some product from an exporter in a country it is negotiating with if that country agrees to reciprocally lower its tariff on a different product benefiting U.S. exporters. This new tariff-setting approach involved reciprocity. Reciprocity meant the U.S. would change a tariff if the trading partner would change a tariff. That was the law and the theory. Lydia, can you give us a tariff example from later in the 1930s, once the U.S. started doing bilateral negotiations with other countries under this law, that might explain how these reciprocal trade agreements would work? In 1938, the U.S. engaged in this bilateral negotiation with the, with the United Kingdom. So this was the Anglo-American Trade Agreement of, of 1938. And at that point, there was only one tariff rate on fishing reels. So all types of fishing reels that were imported into the U.S. faced the same, the same tariff rate. Now, at that time, the U.S. was a dominant producer of fishing reels 
both in the domestic market and in the foreign market. So we really didn't import very many fishing reels at that point. What we did import was a small number of very high quality, expensive fishing reels, and we bought those from the United Kingdom. And so in this 1938 trade agreement with the UK, we actually separated the tariff rates on cheap fishing reels from the tariff rate on expensive fishing reels and reduced the rate on the expensive fishing reels in order to appease the United Kingdom without really doing any harm to the domestic industry. Let me try to tease out the implications of a couple of things that you said there. So fishing reels are the spinny things on a fishing pole that maybe you would use to catch a trout or a bass. What's important here for the United States is that by negotiating reciprocally with the UK or appeasing their export interests, as you put it, in order to get the UK to reduce its tariffs on American exports, the U.S. lowers its tariff on fishing reels. But the U.S. is not lowering its tariff on all fishing reels, only high-end fishing reels. And the U.K. wanted this, fine. But what types of of fishing reels was the United States producing back then? And concerning the, the potential harm that you mentioned to the domestic industry, what other countries were American fishing reel companies competing with at that time? At that time, the U.S. was predominantly producing lower-end fishing reels, and their main competitors were Germany and Japan. So those countries didn't see their tariff rates lowered. Only the more expensive fishing reels from the U.K. were granted this, this concession. The rates that were negotiated with the UK in that trade agreement would ultimately become the, the MFN rates or the tariff rates that were applied to all countries, you know, non-discriminately. So this means that whatever rates got set with the UK would also be, you know, apply to Germany and Japan. And so by carving out the rates on these products that Germany and Japan were not producing, they weren't able to benefit from the reduction in rates. Lydia's findings are super interesting and important. But to really understand them, we need to explain a couple of more historical details about how the United States was negotiating bilateral trade deals back then because it was very different from how things are done today. Today, when the U.S. and U.K. negotiate a bilateral trade agreement, the result will be that the United States only lowers its tariff on a product toward imports from the U.K., that other country directly involved in the deal. The U.S. can do that today because it has two different tariff rates for each product in its tariff schedule. One rate is for its free trade agreement partners, But there's another higher rate for imports from everyone else. That's the MFN rate that WTO countries get. Back in the 1930s, the United States really only had this one MFN rate for each product. And the other institutional detail is that when it was negotiating bilaterally with the UK in 1938, the United States was still following what is called the unconditional MFN rule. That meant that at the conclusion of the negotiations, the U.S. would lower its tariffs toward imports from the U.K. as agreed. 
But under this rule, the United States would also end up having to lower its tariff on that same product unconditionally toward other countries, third countries that were not part of the original U.S. and U.K. negotiations. But you can see how sometimes this could create a problem. What does the United States do for a product like fishing reels, where the U.K. wants a tariff cut, but the U.S. does not want to cut the tariff toward fishing reels coming in from Germany or Japan? Well, the way the U.S. got around the problem here was to create a brand new product, high-end fishing reels, defined to be something that, coincidentally, only the U.K. manufactured. That way, in the end, the U.S. only lowered the tariff on the type of fishing reel that Germany and Japan did not produce. That sort of 1930s tariff maneuvering was very clever. That being said, it did end up contributing to this regressive pattern of tariffs still affecting American consumers today. Now let's move on historically to the late 1940s. The United States helps to found the GATT, the the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. The way reciprocity worked here was a similar story. America would negotiate and agree to lower its tariffs on some products of interest to exporters in foreign countries. If those countries agreed to reciprocally lower their tariffs on different products that U.S. companies wanted to export to them. But sometimes within the United States, trade negotiators would now begin to face resistance. Some domestic industries really wanted to keep tariff protection. I asked Lydia about whether this other protection channel also impacted the pattern of regressive U.S. tariffs. So the other primary channel that we find is one that arises when the domestic industry, so the U.S. producers, actually lobby for protection on the types of things that they produce. So this tends to play a role in cases where the U.S. manufacturers are specializing in the cheaper varieties of of goods. So my favorite example here is the case of forks. So imports of stainless steel flatware grew very rapidly in the 1950s. And most of these imports were of a very cheap variety of stainless steel flatware that came from Japan. These types of flatware cost about 14 cents each. There were some other imported flatware that came from Europe, but these were a more expensive variety costing about 25 cents each. Now at that same time, there were 21 manufacturers in the US producing stainless steel flatware, and the majority of those firms were producing the low cost flatware that cost about eight to 25 cents a piece. So they were producing the the cheaper variety. Now, when there was this big influx of, of imports of cheap flatware from Japan, the industry petitioned for protection, for for tariff protection on the cheaper varieties of of flatware. And so this is what happened. Tariffs on cheaper flatware remained elevated, while during subsequent negotiations uh, in in the GATT, the tariffs on more expensive flatware got reduced. I think I read that the more expensive flatware was silver-plated So in the United States, richer consumers buying silver-plated forks end up facing lower tariffs 
because those are the flatware of biggest interest to the European trading partners on the other side of the negotiating table. Now, for, for the cheaper stainless steel forks, anyone on the other side of the table, like a Japan asking for a tariff cut, they would have faced resistance. In that case, the American industry was telling U.S. trade negotiators not to do it. Over time, those sorts of examples can build up, and the cumulative effect of lots and lots of tariffs remaining on cheaper goods means that America's lower-income households end up losing out. Lydia, those are super interesting examples, but I know that economists like you are not typically satisfied with anecdotes. So what did you do next? So when we saw these examples, we really wanted to figure out whether, you know, these stories that we found were more systematically true. But figuring out, you know, this on a more systematic basis is really tough for two reasons. The first one is that U.S. tariff schedules hadn't been digitized before 1972. So you can't get them in a format that's easy to, you know, work with on a computer and and really run systematic sort of analysis on. The second issue is that between 1930 and now, there have been several major overhauls of the classification systems that are used to organize the tariff schedules. So it's really hard to trace tariff rates on these very specific goods all the way back to to 1930 in a systematic way. There was no easily accessible database of tariffs from this historical era. So what did you do? What we did is actually to go, you know, to the library, go to the archives and get tariff schedules digitized going back to 1930. So we digitized the full U.S. tariff schedules after every major trade negotiation that the U.S. was engaged in between 1930 and and 1989. And then we used that newly digitized data to basically try to put pieces of the puzzle together. Just as an aside for for someone like me, this is going to be a a hugely valuable research resource once you're all done and, and it becomes available. So thanks for doing it. And for your second problem about classification systems, today for tariffs, we have this thing called the harmonized system, and that's been in place since 1989. But between 1930 and 1989, the way that products were classified and how their rates were were being reported was changing every few years. We don't need to get into the details of the headaches that this creates for researchers. But in broad terms, what did you do with these case studies and what did you find? Well, we had to start off with case studies like the examples I've I've given and slowly kind of zoom out to larger and larger groups of goods, basically to see if what we find in the case studies continues to, to hold. We're able to confirm two main findings First, that this regressivity in tariff rates really did emerge between 1930 and around 1970. And second, that after 1970, there's been very little change in the regressive pattern. One thing you notice when you look at the time series that we're able to put together is that there are very obvious 
times where the U.S. is negotiating, you know, in, involved in some sort of negotiation with a particular country, and you see these divergences in cheap and expensive tariff rates, uh, you know, widen. So that's what gives us some confidence that, you know, especially this story about who the U.S. is negotiating with was really important. This helps explain today's pattern of tariffs. Poorer American households end up paying higher taxes for the variety of an imported good that they buy when compared to the tax rate for a variety typically purchased by a richer American household. This was not malice. This was not intentional. And the basic approach of harnessing reciprocal negotiations over the 20th century, especially under the GATT, resulted in enormous gains for Americans overall. But an unintended consequence of that approach was today's tariff regressivity. Lydia, let's shift time again and come back to today. I want to begin by having you catch us up with the state of the American flatware industry. This was one of your examples that you said in the 1950s was asking for really high tariffs to protect themselves from imported stainless steel forks. What's the U.S. industry story today? So interestingly, the tariffs on cheap stainless steel forks are almost the same today as they were in the late 1950s. They've come down a tiny bit, but they really haven't budged. Now, the industry, on the other hand, is totally different. So at that time, there were 21 manufacturers of stainless steel flatware. Today, there's just one. And that one manufacturer is not producing 25-cent forks anymore. The cost of a single fork from that company is $5.29. So that cheap stainless steel flatware industry just doesn't exist in the U.S. anymore. If you're an American consumer paying an additional 20% tax to buy cheap stainless steel forks manufactured abroad, there is no longer an American industry or any jobs that are being protected by that 20% tariff. Is this phenomenon where high tariffs today are now protecting nothing in, in the United States, is this unique to the flatware industry? No, it's really not unique, especially in these cases where the regressivity was caused by the domestic industry lobbying for protection on a cheaper variety of goods a lot of those industries have really, you know, kind of declined in the country and just don't exist anymore. Okay, Lydia, on Trade Talks, we like to think of ourselves as problem solvers, so we want your help solving this problem. Today, we have these examples of high U.S. tariffs hurting poorer consumers, where the tariffs are protecting an industry that may no longer exist in the United States. The Biden administration has said they want to pursue progressive policies that advance equity. Earlier in your career, you sat on the staff of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. How big is this problem of regressive tariffs that, that you've identified? If you were at CEA today, writing a memo for President Biden, how would you characterize the benefits from potentially fixing this type of problem? 
So we do a really simple calculation in the paper that says if we were to get rid of this problem, so eliminate this regressivity in the tariff schedule, so we're going to set rates on cheap forks to be equal to the rates on the expensive forks, how much tariff revenue would be lost? And the answer is about $4 billion per year. What this means is that consumers as a whole would save about $4 billion a year if this pattern didn't exist. We also do some calculations to show that these gains would fall more heavily on the lower end of the income distribution since these are the people who are more likely to be regularly purchasing the cheaper varieties of goods. We find that the welfare gains on the lower end of the income distribution would be about two to three times greater than that on the higher end. Four billion dollars of benefits per year with two to three times bigger gains coming out of that for poorer Americans than for richer Americans. That would be a, a pretty progressive change to, to economic policy. The current U.S. Trade Representative, Ambassador Catherine Tai, has specifically made equitable trade a priority for the, for the Biden-Harris administration. Last October, she requested that economists at the U.S. International Trade Commission do a study about the distributional effects of trade on both workers and underserved communities in the United States. Lydia, what would your research suggest is an important consideration for that kind of study? A lot of the research on, you know, the distributional effects of trade are about looking at the impact of, of imports on the labor market and, and things like that. And what we find is that there's another channel that's important, which is that the tariff rates that are actually written into law are, are causing these distributional consequences. So they're actually hurting lower income consumers. And, and, you know, this is something that you could do something about if you could just get rid of this regressive pattern in, in the law. What are some options that U.S. policymakers might have to, to get rid of this regressive pattern implied by the law? One option, you know, would be just kind of broad tariff liberalization. To the extent that you reduce rates on everything and get them close to zero, this would equalize the rates on these cheap and expensive varieties of goods, which would, you know, eliminate this regressive pattern. The unfortunate reality, I suppose, is that even when it's well-motivated, such as in, in a case like this, where lowering tariffs would disproportionately benefit America's poor, you don't often see countries, including the United States, engaging in unilateral tariff liberalization. Trade negotiators tend to see tariffs as leverage. They say, I'm going to wait until someone in some other country shows up and offers me something before I lower my tariff toward them. I'm going to wait. While this waiting and, and losing out on $4 billion per year while we wait is absolutely a problem if we want to help poor Americans right now, thinking about the tariffs in this way does raise a, a separate question that I wanted to ask you. Why hasn't this problem already been dealt with through reciprocal tariff negotiations? 
why haven't trading partners, you know, the ones making these cheaper varieties where lowering the tax on imports would benefit poor Americans, why haven't those countries shown up to negotiate reciprocally and ask for lower U.S. tariffs? I, I think one of the difficulties is that a lot of these goods that we find are really regressive are consumer goods that we're primarily importing from from developing countries. This includes China, but it includes other developing countries as well. And these are countries that are not kind of sitting at the negotiating table very often on these on these trade agreements. And even kind of the specific goods that we're talking about are ones that we tend not to, to negotiate on. And so I think there's needs to be sort of a, a change in the way we're doing nego- negotiations with these countries to be able to actually make headway on this particular issue. We've been focusing on American consumers, America's lower income households, and America's regressive tariffs. My last question for you is, is the United States alone with this problem? Or do we see these same sorts of patterns of regressive tariffs hurting lower income consumers? Are these patterns found in other places around the world as well? We haven't looked as much in as much detail at other countries, but we have found that in the modern day tariff schedules, the same type of pattern exists in the EU. So we think that it's probably a, a more broad pattern across advanced economies. This makes sense because it was the countries from the present day EU, these were the countries that the US was negotiating with in the 1930s and 1940s. So it's not really a surprise that the same regressive pattern has cropped up in in their modern day tariff schedules as well. That makes sense to me too. Lydia, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. To wrap things up, I want to highlight how Lydia's results speak to a bigger set of issues for U.S. policy, and especially this question of how to approach trade with developing countries today. I think that Lydia is right, that today there is substantial overlap between what poor countries produce and export, and what poor consumers in the United States are are trying to buy. This pattern of U.S. tariff regressivity emerges in the late 1930s, continues on over the next couple of decades, and then has been stuck in place since the 1970s. The 1970s is also when rich countries like the United States started to give developing countries low tariffs for free under something called GSP. The, the generalized system of preferences. The end result of GSP has been that, yes, the United States gives zero tariffs for some developing country exports, but only some. And it is the United States alone that makes the decision of which tariffs to cut and which tariffs not to cut. One problem with GSP has been that developing countries do not get the benefit of sitting across the negotiating table from the United States. Developing countries don't get to make requests about which American markets they want to open for their exports and what they're willing to do reciprocally in exchange. Under GSP, there is no negotiating table. 
That has meant that there are entire sectors, clothing and, and footwear are probably two of the most important examples, where U.S. tariffs remain high. But those are the very sectors that likely matter the most to developing country exporters. What's also weird is U.S. tariffs there remain high, even though the United States no longer has much, if any, domestic production or workers that today's U.S. tariffs would seek to protect. And coincidentally, these are the same products and sectors where reducing U.S. tariffs would benefit lower-income Americans too. Put all these things together and eliminating that pattern of tariff regressivity that Lydia has identified could end up benefiting both poor consumers in the United States as well as exporters and workers in poorer countries. So maybe that is what trade negotiators should focus on next. Figure out how to harness the power of reciprocal trade negotiations to increase the chances that those sorts of progressive win-win outcomes can be made to happen. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Lydia Cox at Yale University. Do read her paper with Miguel Acosta titled The Regressive Nature of the U.S. Tariff Code, Origin and Implications. As always, a huge thanks as well to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow the podcast on Twitter. Please, in fact, help let people know about it by tweeting out this episode. We are on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to types of 1950s flatware, two is better than one. Or maybe types of alligator skin handbags is better than one. Already, the double underscore thing is is not going well. 